Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash SiriusXM. Why is that watermelon there? I'll tell you why, you monkey boys, because it's your Buckaroo Bonsai Bruiser, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your big bootay, uh, Wizard Jake. <laughs> and that's right. We're doing, oh my God, I can't wait. Because, you know, it, 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 everyone's like, we need another Skyrim. We need another episode that covers something so massive mm-hmm. and huge and just all-encompassing of, of, of nerd fandom that, you know, grandparents are watching it or playing it and little videos on TikTok, you know, things of that nature. And that's why I was like, Jake, we have to do an episode on the beloved, the effervescent, the in- indelible uh, Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. And Jake said to that, what are you fucking nuts? Put some pants on. This is a professional environment here. If you're going to do a podcast with me, if we're going to talk, have a serious meeting about what episodes we got to do, you have to have your penis inside your pants. Thank you for quoting me accurately for once, Holden. Usually you <laughs> throw out wild allegations. and it's, <laughs> I spend a lot of our openings just stammering, being like, I didn't say that. But no, that is exactly how that went down. It totally went down that way, but it was painted like a dragon and I wanted to show it off. So there you have it. The fact that you got the underside so detailed was noteworthy. I will say that. Holden, we cover popular (laughs) things in nerd history. We cover massively popular things that everyone knows about, such as Buckaroo Banzai across the intervention. Go on. We cover things that have made indelible marks in pop culture history and also uh, keep coming back year after year. Things that have stayed in the popular consciousness, especially in this modern era of reboots and uh, and merchandising and you know nothing is ever left to truly die especially from that blockbuster summer of 84 where such legendary movies as ghostbusters and uh and back to the future and and poltergeist and the thing you know just these legend this legendary moment right. in cinema history buckaroo bonsai <laughs> across the eighth dimension go the on. adventures of buckaroo bonsai across the eighth dimension <laughs> Does not even have a fucking Funko Pop, Holden. Do you that understand was, uh, how insane big that metric. is? Do you understand? The everything has film. a Funko Pop, Holden. Everything. It's the ultimate cult movie. It's that culty. It doesn't even have 
a Funko Poppy that that would make it too mainstream. This is Jake. This is this gem of a film. Everything inherently inside of it is it's the Big Bang for so many beloved things. It is. It has one of the greatest casts mm-hmm. of a sci-fi film ever made. It is about a physicist, neurosurgeon, test pilot, rock and roll star, and martial arts expert. That's right, one Buckaroo Banzai. It is as if you asked a 10-year-old boy to write a movie and they were somehow able to like sit down and work with Final Draft and put it all on the page, and it's incredible. It is a marvel. More accurately, it's as if you asked a 10-year-old to write 30 movies and you yeah. arbitrarily <laughs> produced the 17th one. And it's a really funny 10-year-old, by the way. Like, a really almost accidentally hilarious 10-year-old uh, with that pumps out really it, weird random one-liners. And there's a watermelon. But there's a reason for the watermelon, and I know the reason, and Jake knows it too, and we'll get into it. That's right. Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension. We're talking about the 1984 sci-fi film produced and directed by W.D. Richter, written by Earl Mac Rausch, and starring Peter Weller, Ellen Barkin, John Lithgow, Jeff Goldblum, and Christopher Lloyd. This film is incredible. Everything else means nothing in relation to it. Oh, Blade Runner, that's a movie. Whatever. Okay, so here's the thing. (laughs) This is, I I guess this is a gush. Is this a gush? I don't even know. Yes, it's a gush. The only reason- You love it. (laughs) I have heard of this movie, and maybe, maybe the people listening have heard of this movie, and that's a big maybe, because I don't know if people are even going to click on this thing, is because it was this whispered in joke on like the background of certain like Simpsons and Star Trek episodes. It was something that like uh, Kevin Smith would like make a throwaway reference to on one of his podcasts. It was a thing you almost that made like, a whole TV show based on it, by the way. We'll yeah, get into that later. But it yeah, is for a sure. specific just Gen X nerd in joke that like I barely had any understanding of to the point where like my my dad, who I usually go to to explain these things when I don't know a reference to something when I was a kid, like basically just said, don't even bother. <laughs> like it is just this this thing that exists from this certain time and place. The fandom basically is just cemented in like that at the very youngest, maybe in your like mid thirties to is when you even might care about Buckaroo Banzai twenties, but yeah, for sure. Uh, we definitely had a group watching of it. Me and some murder fist folks. Shout out to my boy, Evan, who I think turned a lot of us on to it. I'm pretty sure I ended up watching it though in New York. And because it was just this cult, Again, thing within just my friend group. And it was like, we, you got to check this thing out. This movie has the most insane cast. It has the most batshit insane premise. It, it just, it's, it's wildly, weirdly hilarious um, all throughout while also being this like 80s as fuck relic. We keep saying weird. We keep saying weird, Holden. But I think we have to get into like a little bit of, of details. Like, you know, it's, it's one thing to say like, oh, so random, but like, this right. movie does things that like no other movie I've ever seen uh, really does, which is like 
the cartoonish, like people have done over the top parodies of like action heroes where it's like a two fisted super scientist slash secret agent slash ladies man or whatever. But like, this is played completely straight. Like our character goes from like open brain surgery to a press conference about like a new discovery in particle physics to a jet car to like uh, pulling guns to a rock show. It's like just just like it is taken as given. Let me stop you right there, Jake. Actually, let's hear a clip. Let's hear that clip. Okay, they go to the rock and roll show. They get on stage. They start rocking out in this crazy synthy 80s rock and roll number. And then Buckaroo Bonsai, in the middle of a miniature French trumpet, trumpet solo, solo. <laughs> stops everything. And this happens. <laughs> Excuse me. Excuse me, uh, is someone out there not having a good time? And, uh, is, uh, is somebody, somebody crying out there in the darkness? Somebody crying. I'm sorry. Uh, can we get, can we get her a mic? And a spotlight. Uh, Tommy, can we run her uh, mic? Can we run her mic? Are you serious? Yeah, run her mic. What's your name? Who cares? Right. I care. What's your name? Right. Penny. Did you say Peggy? No. My name's Penny, Penny Pretty. Oh. It doesn't matter, it's not important. I just said, I just sponged up a little uh, too much fat 69, that's all. <laughs> I'm down on my last nickel in this lousy town. They wouldn't even take my luggage and hop. I lost my room at the wine this morning. Hey, 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 no. Don't be mean. We don't have to be mean. Because remember, no matter where you go, there you are. sing this song for you, Peggy. <laughs> and anybody else out there who always And then after that, I, 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 you know, it's harder to, to play the rest of it uh, because you kind of have to see it. So I'll just say, after that, he sings the slow song. It gets interrupted by Ellen Barkett character's attempt to blow her brains <laughs> out, shooting off a gun in the room, and then like, she gets like tackled and taken out of the room. And, and the it's entire a whole thing. band pulls out guns that they had hidden in their instruments. So uh, good. also should be noted, 
everybody on screen is dressed like a goddamn cowboy bebop character. Yes. The fashion is so good in this. And I'll have some tidbits on that. We'll talk about it later. But the fashion is weirdly, in retrospect, fantastic, especially Jeff Goldblum's insane cowboy costume. In casting into your mind's eye, if you're trying to imagine what kind of 80s fashion this is, uh, every male character is wearing a necktie, but he is wearing it incorrectly or in the stupidest (laughs) way possible. That is the 80s fashion we're in. Buckaroo, during that part especially, is dressed um, like uh, Spike Spiegel, like pretty much 100%. Like no for no, to the point where it feels like it was intentional. Yeah, it's really great, and it just keeps getting weirder. John Lithgow does one of the most over-the-top, insane, amazing performance. He's Nick Cage Lithgow. I mean, it is... It's so wild and fun and crazy, and his accent is nuts. Apparently, he spent a bunch of time with an Italian tailor on the MGM lot and recorded uh, all his di- the way he talked to, to capture his weird. It's like a weird Italian kind of ish accent that's just. I mean, phenomenal. He, is, he yeah, he asked the tailor to just read his lines in his thick, weird Italian accent, and then he just aped that basically, <laughs> and he ended up giving the tailor a Mr. Lithgow's dialect coach credit on the film. Yes. He did yeah yeah so in a way in a way it is this anomaly it is this uh this this almost incomprehensible thing dense with plot and references to things that don't happen on screen uh completely filled with characters that are introduced that you're supposed to already know um kind of the uh main character buckaroo bonsai is this zen-like christ-like super spy ubermensch that uh, Peter Weller delivers. Yeah, he's always Robocop. (laughs) With a level of like confidence and dedication. But for all the things that make it weird and make it like uh, a truly unsettling viewing experience, in a lot of ways, it is a portent to what movies were going to be because there is kind of this fourth wall breaking kind of Mm -hmm. thing with stuff like the watermelon, with stuff like uh, uh, the president and like little visual gags. There is uh, the idea that you're watching this gallery of like heroic yet kind of identical characters sitting in a room talking about nonsense before a big action scene uh, is kind of basically a Marvel movie. Like nowadays Uh it is kind of what blockbuster movies have become just 35 years before that was what they were supposed to be and told out of order because again this is the only movie in what is a universe that's supposed to have referenced dozens upon dozens upon dozens of adventures um the so you have the style you have the absurdity you have uh the bizarre uh, production design where just all the props and all of the special effects uh, gr- make it this very like dirty science grounded science fiction universe that isn't exactly like it's it's not um, cyberpunk, but it's not like slick sci fi. Uh, it's just this almost indecipherable thing that for the secret cadre of I believe they call themselves uh, Buckaroo Bonsai Irregulars in reference to the uh, fan club in the film. They should call themselves the Monkey Boys, but go on. It has (laughs) been this secret handshake among Gen X nerds. Uh, There has been 
websites and fan newsletters and meetups and like this, like just this undercurrent of fans that uh, have, you know, just everyday workaday people that work normal jobs as well as like secret geek royalty like Joss Whedon and Kurt Busaic and Ernest Klein, uh, all kind of using this movie as a touchstone for a time and place in the mid 80s when the science fiction and genre fiction was like exploding and no movie embodied the dizzying heights that the, that it was capable of then Buckaroo Bonsai. There's also the producer, one of the producers for this film is instrumental in getting Back to the Future made. And I think that that also, and also this film has Christopher Lloyd in it. And I think that also is like, Back to the Future is just the version of this that like hit and became a massively successful sci-fi film you know uh, for that time but but it's that that concept is nuts you know what i well, mean okay and, and not not in the same way not in the same like again 10 year old playing dress up in his closet kind of way but it's still like I, I think it's kind of this precursor to like a lot of the zany fun sci-fi craziness that we got in the 80s like and 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 the serious stuff as well it, it was like we're just starting to embrace this like wild wonderful world of like let's go to other planets let's you know let's live in these fantastical worlds with these fantastical characters there is i mean the opening of the movie uh does almost feel like the delorean and back to the future because it's buckaroo mm-hmm. driving this jet car that like reaches a top speed and then disappears with the tires left uh, and it's powered by a mysterious device called the oscillation overthruster that, uh, in the way it's presented, feels pretty much exactly like the flux capacitor. Christopher Lloyd is there uh, in the movie. Like, I can definitely see how Back to the Future, uh, the experience of making this movie influenced Back to the Future. I don't know if I'd call it like a precursor to Back to the Future. But in a w- you know what it is? Back to the Future has a very similar story of these two uh, relative neophytes to cinema getting to make this insane movie that just draws on all of their childhood obsessions all at once. Uh, Mm -hmm. The end result, though, in Back to the Future is an incredibly coherent and charming story. And (laughs) the result of Buckaroo Banzai is a dense and confusing (laughs) miasma uh, that having watched the movie twice this week, because I actually spoke to uh, the editor-in-chief of World Watch One, the longest-running Buckaroo Banzai uh, fanzine, he was like, if you watch it again, it'll be less confusing because there's so much information just being blasted at you in every line of dialogue that like, you're, the human mind cannot absorb it all in a single viewing. <laughs> I love it so much. I'm so glad you talked to that guy. Hope you got some interesting tidbits. I am ready to get into this wonderful story mm. uh, that uh, is, it, uh, I think a lot of these... I'm gl- you know, it's fun to take something like this that just feels so, like you said, like hashtag random and yada, 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 and get to f- finally like ground it a little bit and understand why the watermelon's there, why this world seems to have already exist, why they said there was going to be a sequel at the end and then just there wasn't one. Mm-hmm. All, all these kinds of things really are tied into the the writing process and how our director, W.D. Richter, and worked with the writer, Earl MacRouch, who seems like a really fascinating person just in general based on the way Richter describes him. So let's get into it. Let's get let's get it going. I, I want to uh, start actually with the background on W.D. Richter before we Rick, meet our they writer. They call him Rick in casual oh, conversations. Just, 
As a kid, Rick loved going to the movies. He said, I went to a lot of movies of all kinds as a kid, but mostly B-horror films from the mid-50s through the mid-60s. In 1964, I saw Dr. Strangelove, and in 1965, The Loved One. They suggested a new direction and deeply influenced me. Of course, Dr. Strangelove is the Stanley Kubrick dark comedy about the Cold War. The Loved One is actually a comedy film about the funeral business in Los Angeles. Which is I never heard of that one. He went to Dartmouth College, and then USC Film School. And Richter said, I wrote screenplays at USC and one of them secured me an agent. I then worked as a reader for Warners and wrote on the side and continued to do so when Warners and Irvin Kirshner uh, let me work as as his assistant while he was prepping Dirty Harry for Sinatra. That project fell apart. But a spec script I'd written, Slither, got to the director, Howard Zeef, and he set it up, odd as it was, and we shot it. Presto, I was a produced screenwriter. Slither stars James Caan, uh, who plays an ex-convict trying to find a stash of stolen money, which was followed by two more comedies, Peeper, which is a satire of film noir, and Nickelodeon, which is about the silent film era. Uh, then he wrote the 1970s remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, the Frank Langella-helmed Dracula, after that and Brubaker and Brubaker's uh, the film he got nominated for an Oscar for it is a prison drama film starring Robert Redford as a newly arrived prison warden who attempts to clean up a corrupt prison system Rick said none of those films did perform well but they were respected and as a result I was respected as a young writer with perceived potential you must remember that during the 70s and 80s eccentric characters and unusual small stories were nothing Hollywood ran screaming for that came later. Uh, and so in 1974, between the film Slither and Peeper, Richter's wife met a rev- uh, read a review of a book called Dirty Pictures from the Prom, which was the debut novel of fellow Dartmouth College alum Earl Mac Roush, and recommended it to W.D. Richter, who read it and loved it, and that led to him making contact with Roush. Yeah, uh, Roush <laughs> was, is an interesting guy. Uh, in interviews, the cast uh, describe him as this eccentric genius. Uh, I think it's Clancy Brown or uh, Peter Weller describes him as an MIT grad. He went to Dartmouth, but like this like kid from Texas who was uh, incredibly smart. He like published his first novel or he wrote his first novel while he was still in high school. And he published yeah, Dirty it. Pictures from the Prom was that novel, by the way. Yeah. So this is his first book written in high school. Very much like a catch of the rye kind of thing. This one book site described it as the quest of an existential candide searching vainly for a search worth searching for trapped by the paradox that destroys the distinction between freedom and restriction, acceptance and rejection, affirmation and despair. Roush had to say this about that book. That book was something in the catch and the rye vein, the kind of thing every teenager writer does at first. Unfortunately for me, it ended up being published. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I felt something exciting would come along next. I mean, college was exciting, not that I was too active. I kept to myself, sent off my book, and started another. Um, that second book, by the way, was called Arkansas Adios. And I had another source that said that was actually the book that, uh, Richter ended up reading. I'm not really sure. I've seen different accounts saying different things. By some twist of fate, this established Hollywood screenwriter reaches out to a younger, uh, writer who, uh, at this point, I believe Mac had dropped out of law school after graduating Dartmouth and was literally selling uh like was an rv salesman 
at the time and was just kind of miserable, didn't know what he wanted to do. And so uh, according to an old issue of Starlog magazine, uh, after getting the invite to come out to uh, Hollywood from Richter, basically, this is the quote, uh, Macrosh explains, I just arrived in Hollywood. Uh, He, Richter, was already making a nice living writing. I was struggling. I used to go to his house three or four nights a week. And one night I said, I would like to write a script about this unusual guy. It's kind of, it's called Find the Jet Car, said the president, a buckaroo bonsai thriller. Other versions of this story uh, says that he originally called the character Buckaroo Bandy. And after a few, yeah. Mm-hmm. Apparently Richter convinced him to change it. What is What does Bandy mean? It's an old English name that uh, kind of like Cooper uh, references a job making barrels. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Rick laughed and said, okay, great. Uh, why don't Susan and I and your corporation give you some money to do it? And so literally Richter was so amused and so loved uh, Max writing that he basically independently paid for this first screenplay to get off the ground. Uh, Mac then says again in the Starlog interview, uh, I, this is from the 80s, by the way. Uh, I hadn't been out here very long and I wasn't exactly working for Writers Guild scale. I was just trying to figure, uh, trying to get a few bucks here and there writing. So I said, sure, it'll pay the rent for a few months. And I went off to write. But I never really finished it. I got 80 or 90 pages into that one and just quit uh, for some reason. Over the years, though, I would start other Buckaroo scripts. Yeah, I have a good quote from Richter about this whole thing as well, from a little more of a modern interview. He said, he told us about Buckaroo Bonsai. Of course, as you said at the time, find the jet car, said the president. Uh, Even though Mac's plot and characters were just in a beginning sketchy phase, Susan and I were immediately attracted to Buckaroo's irreverence and the concept of a multi-talented hero who's always off on an unlikely adventure. We decided to subsidize a Buckaroo Bonsai screenplay I didn't know if I would direct it back then, though. I wasn't sure of what the project's future would be anyway. As strange as Buckaroo Bonsai may seem today, 10 years ago, it would have been impossible to explain to a studio how it could be successfully shot and marketed. I realized that funding Mac might just be an exercise in buying a very expensive story that I wanted to read. But, But my other, perhaps even more important impetus, was that I wanted to help him get started in the movie business. Roush also said his idea was based on, quote, all those out and out press the accelerator to the floor nonstop kung fu movies of the early 70s. Mm. Uh, so yeah, one of those scripts that he started writing. So he's writing all these scripts and this is going to be our first little touchstone I think for like how the fuck did this movie come to be mm-hmm. and why is it so insane and especially like why does it introduce all of this stuff as if we already like knew about it or as if there was some whole storied history of TV shows and novels and things surrounded by a uh, centered around this character and around the Hong Kong Cavaliers, which I'm surprised. I think it's the first time we're saying the phrase yeah. Hong Kong Cavaliers. That's his group, his band. And- Is it all right if I just say Team Bonsai for the rest of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> I love Hong Kong Cavaliers. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, one of those uh, scripts that he was writing oh, was I'm called- I'm sorry, hold the- on. I'm just receiving word. They're now called the Mainland China Cavaliers. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Yeah, one title was uh, The Strange Case of Mr. Cigars. Mm. And Rouse describes this as being about a big, huge, King Kong-sized robot, some big secrets, some exotic locales, and Hitler's cigars. It was crazy. (laughs) 
I, it's, I, I'm sad that we don't have, I mean, uh, these, these scripts might exist. Richter would later collect all of these scripts into like a giant Bible that he would keep with him, uh, during the shooting. And so I wonder if they're still around, but there's just so many like insane other stories that he started working on. As you said, I have it around 30 to 40 pages into the script before he would abandon it. Um, but Richter said, the plots involve several different nemeses for our, from our pr- uh, present film, including the infamous Hanoi Zan, boss of the World Crime League. Many of the characters, like Perfect Tommy and Rawhide, weren't created until later drafts. Members of the Hong Kong Cavaliers that Mac did include, as well as other roles, were eliminated or developed differently. Buckaroo, for instance, wasn't uh, always half Japanese. Uh, so essentially, Richter is just spending this whole time trying to wrangle Roush and his many insane ideas that like never fully co- get completely off the ground. Um, and and Roush is all over the place. For one example of this, he once sold a car with an original screenplay <laughs> under the seat. Yeah, he was just that kind of guy. Always forgot his keys. That kind of guy, right? Every, we all we all have a friend like that. Roush uh, talks about how sometimes when he was working on drafts of the screenplay, he would try and remember something he had previously written and have to go to Richter and just be like, hey, remember like draft seven when I did that (laughs) thing with like the spaceship? Do you still have that? And like Richter would be like, yes, and reach into his filing cabinet and hand it back to him. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. I'm not sure how this happens, but surprisingly enough, Roush ends up getting some side work that helps buffer this time period where he's struggling to get this film together, including uh, some notable stuff like New York, New York. That's uh, a Scorsese The Scorsese movie. film. And uh, a horror film, A Stranger is Watching, which is directed by the Friday the 13th director, Sean S. Cunningham. And this is what, A, gives him enough of a little bit of a name in the business to kind of get things going in Hollywood in that way, way while he's also trying to pull this insane idea together. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I mean... But how? How does this movie get made, Holden? <laughs> now that Richter has proven himself as a solid director in Hollywood, Roush was getting steady work. Richter talked to two producers. He talked to Frank Marshall I and I think this Neil was his, actually his de- directorial debut. These are just two like, yes. competent screenwriters at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, right. Did I say as a solid director? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Now that Richter was uh, proven himself as uh, just, a, just a solid screenwriter, Roush getting some steady work. Richter has a talk with two producers, Frank Marshall 
Marshall and Neil Canton about doing a project with them. Now, uh, from that meeting, Canton and Richter decided to form their own production company and that Buckaroo Banzai would be their first movie together. And Neil Canton is that producer I referred to earlier. Um, and he, we talked about him in our Back to the Future episodes. He was a major player in getting that off the ground. They then reapproached Roush to finally get his ass in gear and nail down a full script. So Roush whipped up a 60-page treatment titled Lepers from Saturn. They shopped this treatment around, and no surprise here, studios were uh, reluctant mm-hmm. to take on the insane concept uh, from two first-time producers and a first-time director. Uh, Canton, however, had an inside in with the veteran producer at MGA uh, UA United Artists, and thought that person, um, and through that person, they managed to get a development deal with the studio. So Roush then spent a year and a half finishing the screenplay, and in that time, the lepers from Saturn turned into the Electroids from Planet 10. He also pulled a ton of stuff from his other unfinished screenplays for the world building, the character backgrounds, this, that, and the other. Uh, Then there was a Writers Guild strike in 1981, which further delayed the project and led to to it transferring from MGM to 20th Century Fox and gave Roush time to write three more additional drafts. And now we get into the casting, which is fascinating. I mean, this is, again, one of the most stacked casts ever. Um, and it starts with Peter Weller. For the lead role, the studio wanted a big name, but Richter was more interested in someone relatively unknown. This is before Weller had done RoboCop, uh, and someone that had experience on stage and in small films so that he, quote, would be able to completely interact with props. He also wanted an actor who, quote, could look both heroic with grease all over his face and project the kind of intelligence you would associate with a neurosurgeon and inventor. Peter Weller started out on Broadway in the 1970s and was a member of the Actors Studio before he moved over to small films, including the divorce drama Shoot the Moon in 1982, which caught Richter's eye. But Richter was super not wrong about Weller exuding intelligence. He's a bit of a renaissance man himself. He's a bit of a buckaroo bonsai in real life. He would later get his PhD in Italian Renaissance art history. Um, he was, um, uh, he plays like both that guitar and miniature French horn. He plays, he's an accomplished musician and a great actor. And, and so it's kind of a perfect fit. In another Starlog interview, this one with Peter Weller. In modern interviews, Peter Weller will often go like, yeah, it was a crazy movie. haha, so random. Like those guys were nutty. But in this interview, he's like, I am Buckaroo Banzai. I am the Renaissance <laughs> hero. It's uh, literally uh, in the interview. This is a quote. W.D. Richter was uh, looking for someone to bring screenwriter Earl MacRush's Renaissance hero to life. It blew Rick's mind, Weller recalls. He didn't know a guy like me who was a musician who also knew about guns or a guy who could race motorcycles and cars. <laughs> <laughs> He's the real deal, man. Weller's the boss, bro. I would you don't get mess to with the Weller. studio by four forty, by five forty a.m. Work out until six thirty. Show up on set at seven. Rehearse until eight. Then shoot until seven at night. And then we would party until midnight. <laughs> yeah, he also um, uh, three times in a row won the Sex with Women uh, World Tournament, which is amazing to see. I mean, he was a lover. He was a giver. Uh, it's incredible stuff. There's also uh, a great thing in uh, this issue of, I believe this is, yeah, it's a uh, September 1984 Starlog where he talks about how He's not scared of getting typecast. You know, if Buckaroo Banzai takes off like he thinks it's going to be, he's better equipped. 
the public w- might accept Harrison Ford as Hamlet, but Hollywood will never cast him as Hamlet because he was known as nothing until Star Wars. He had no record. My point is, I have a history, a stage history. Certain actors, before they get pinned, have a track record. My opportunities to discuss doing Hamlet are five steps up the ladder of possibilities beyond anyone else who has been pinned as a popular hero, only because of my body of work before Buckaroo Banzai. Like, he literally is talking about, it's like, not me, I will never be typecast. And then uh, he ends up doing RoboCop and gets the most <laughs> fucking typecast any actor ever, has ever yeah. been. Uh, Weller also had this to say about the script. I didn't understand it, actually, and I think no actor in it does understand it. <laughs> the role of Dr. Emilio Lazardo was actually written for uh, with John Lithgow in mind, and man, uh, uh, Richard managed to convince him that this would be a real treat of an acting role. Lithgow said, I have had roles where I came very close to going over the top. In Twilight Zone, I almost went over the top several times, but this role is completely over the top. It makes the role in Twilight Zone seem like a model of restraint. He, wa- he, he walked like a, quote, old crab uh, and recorded his sessions with the Italian tailor uh, to get the voice. Lithgow said, from the beginning to the very end, I think I was laughing all the time except for when the camera was rolling. And in fact, there is a moment in the film where you can see me breaking up. It was that much fun. And that's the first I hear, but there are more examples of that, apparently, of this being a real mm-hmm. enjoyable treat to work on. And that is really nice to see. Now, again, I think that that is why this film is championed uh, still by groups of people is because you can get a sense of that through it, that this wasn't some nightmare, you know, uh, production that, that these actors are embarrassed about. In fact, I think they've come to really embrace it in years since, including Jeff Goldblum, Ellen Barkin, uh, who had already made a name for herself in films such as Diner and Eddie and the Cruisers, described the film as, quote, if Terry Southern had written Star Wars, none of the characters are quite what they should be. It's just my kind of thing. So, Terry Southern, by the way, a satirist responsible for stuff like Dr. Strangelove and Easy Rider. Mm. Barkin said... Buckaroo Banzai was one of my total favorites. I think that movie was way ahead of its time. And that should have been a movie that had three sequels. If you watch that movie now, it's just brilliant. I hated working on Eddie and the fucking Cruisers. (laughs) (laughs) I love Ellen Barkin after doing this episode. Oh, uh, Um, Ellen Barkin, of course, plays uh, Penny Pretty who is yes. the identical twin sister of Buckaroo Banzai's dead wife, Peggy Pretty, or is yes. she? The movie never <laughs> explains. The movie does not explain that, so you'll, it's up to your imagination. Richter wanted Christopher Lloyd to play John Big Booty uh, from I'm the beginning. I'm sorry, John Big Booty? Big Booty! Tay! Tay! <laughs> Lloyd was already well established at this point with stuff like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. It's still kind of a shock that they got him. He wasn't Uh, Doc Brown yet. Yeah, I guess he wasn't quite Doc Brown yet. But he did have a lot of movies under his belt at that time. He's a steady working actor. And Jeff Goldblum actually first met Richter on the set of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And uh, still says of the film, he had a great time making the movie. And uh, yeah, it was just this amazing... Kismet, I'm not naming... A lot of the other actors, a huge cast in this film, but those are like the biggest standouts, I feel. Um, I really like a young Clancy Brown as Rawhide, the uh, mm. stoic, also super scientist, warrior musician in the group. <laughs> God, it's so funny. Yeah. It's it's just, yeah, it is an incredible cast. Um, there's also the talent involved 
is super, uh, super interesting. Um, they originally had on cinematography Jordan Cronenworth, who was the uh, cinematographer on Blade Runner and was a real hot commodity yeah. at the time. And if you watch the movie, there's uh, certain scenes like the uh, like the one you referenced earlier, the nightclub scene, the Artie's artery scene, which is lit so cool yeah. and so colorfully and so dramatically. And... Um, Unfortunately, Jordan was kicked off the film yes. because of the machinations of producer David Beagleman, who I think, do we introduce this fucking villain? Yeah, I mean, I have a whole, I, I literally called this segment in my notes, Beating Beagleman. All right, uh, all right. Uh, well, that was then that was just a little crumb. That was just a little crumb then. Yeah, we're almost there, though. I'll, the only other stuff I was going to say before I got to that was the art director of the film was a guy named J. Michael Riva. Uh, he also worked on acclaimed films such as The Color Purple, The Goonies, <laughs> Lethal Weapon, and Iron Man. And again, it's, it's like this cast these people we just named, like there's just so much talent flowing through this insane project that that again is what I think makes it just this occult phenomenon. The production Re design uh, is really exemplary. The everything mm -hmm. from the alien technology to all of uh, Buckaroo Bonsai's like machines and hideaways and home bases all have a very unique sensibility. And like, it really feels like its own physical universe. It's not like, one of those things where uh, what's what's the prop? The PKE meter from Ghostbusters that just shows up mm -hmm. in like a thousand generic sci-fi movies. Like it's mm -hmm. not off the shelf shit. The jet car from the opening sequence is ridiculous. That jet car is insane. They uh, actually like hacked it together from like a Ford F-150 and got honest to God thrust racing experts to like yeah, assemble the jet engine. They put in an oversized carburetor and nitrous oxide injectors, as well as a working GE turbojet <laughs> engine. They went ham on this thing. They worked with this company called Thrust Racing to soup that Ford up, and it's incredible. And Riva was also quite involved in that. Uh, Aggie uh, uh, Gerard Gerard Rogers uh, designed the costumes for this film, as well as Return of the Jedi, American Graffiti, and The Conversation. Ridiculous credits. Uh, the clothes for the Hong Kong Cavaliers were actually found in stores around LA, but Rogers made sure to quote, have something a little off so that there's a kick to everything to make it unique. It's an interesting style, not a cliche style. You throw stuff in there that people will recognize. And I think that's what's, I honestly, it holds up today. And I think again is what, why it's like clearly an inspiration for like Wes Anderson. And honestly, you look at it and you're like, that was Williamsburg in my 20s. Like, everybody is dressed so cool and hip in a modern hipster way. It's hilarious that the fashion is so outlandish and over the top. You know, the characters are wearing like plaid suits with matching plaid shirts. People are wearing like bolo ties and sheepskin chaps, like Jeff Goldblum's like cowboy getup. Uh, it's so cartoonish that it's now like watching it with with younger eyes it it's just what you assume everybody dressed like in the 80s but at the time even people yeah. in the 80s were like what the fuck are these people wearing <laughs> fucking perfect tommy with his oh. amazing uh suit suit jackets no shirt he looks incredible everybody does and and just it's so iconic especially that final shot with all of them walking we'll talk more about that and how that came to be if there's like an iconic buckaroo 
image. Mm. It's generally that if it's not them in the nightclub playing music, that that is just looks like something I would see in a fucking music video by like a really popular indie band today, I mean, I, you know? Indie bands have gone back and like made music videos in reference of that. Like Totally, totally. It, it's just so cool. And I, the fashion is such a big a high point of the film. So yeah, let's talk about it. According to Richter, uh, a lot of the struggle he had making the film was coming up against one of the producers, David Beagleman. Richter says that he, quote, was really our enemy for the entire movie. He was the guy who said, go ahead, you can make this movie movie, but he never got it on any level. He also said, Beagleman was crazy. He would sabotage the movie in any way, including like, um, and again, I think it's such an iconic look for today, the red glasses that Buckaroo Bonsai wore. He was like, Beagleman would be like, a hero doesn't wear red glasses. Like, it was just like arbitrary kind of frustrating uh, statements of uh, blocking things in coming the, through the pipeline. In uh, the DVD commentary that I had to like scrounge the internet for a rip of because I, <laughs> we just don't operate on a time scale that allows, or I don't even own a Blu-ray player what the fuck's wrong with me? anyway Richter talks about how Beagleman uh saw one of the dailies I believe it's the scene where Buckaroo Banzai is doing that press conference in the same hotel as the Harley Davidson convention uh and he first gets zapped and discovers the electroids um that Beagleman threw a shit fit because he was yes uh I believe the core miscommunication is that Beagleman thought he was making an Indiana Jones movie, just like a unironic, down the center, serialized adventure franchise movie that um, uh, was, you know, 1984 is when Temple of Doom came out. Like Indiana Jones was a huge hit. He wanted a huge down the middle hit. He did not want any of this weirdness. Um, and so, yeah, like the character, uh, the red glasses was a weird sticking point. And so Richter said he doesn't he wears the glasses like maybe three times in the whole movie. Like, mm -hmm. like, just let me use it in three scenes. And Beagleman was like, uh, I don't know. All right. The film was shot out of order. So uh, Beagleman comes by another day of filming and they're shooting another scene where he's wearing the glasses. Beagleman flips out, threatens to fire Rick, threatens to shut down the whole movie. And he, like literally WD Richter is having to like explain how out of sequence filming works, that it's still within the original ah. three that he didn't shoot through like the scenes since they had that talk. Um, and that it was only the second time, even on top of that. And it was, I believe Neil Canton had to step in and be like, he's right, David, you said three, like, let it go. Um, in the empire magazine, oral history of, uh, the movie, uh, we talked about Jordan, uh, Jordan uh, Cronin, oh God, I'm so bad with names. Croninweth, the uh, Blade Runner guy who was doing all this amazing lighting and photography stuff. And at one point uh, during a production meeting, Beagleman stormed in demanding to know what was going on with the production and that if their aim was to make a box office hit or some cult weird film. And they all looked at each other and uh, kind of sassed him and said they wanted to make a cult-like movie that had a fandom for years afterwards. And uh, <laughs> Beagleman said that, well, if you don't need an elite cinematographer to make a cult film, I'm firing Jordan. <laughs> Unbelievable. Also, uh, Beagleman's the reason why Jamie Lee Curtis is not 
in this film, unfortunately. That's because uh, Beagleman was super against them talking about Hanoi Zahn and uh, planting him as this overarching villain that would appear in future sequels, future projects. He was like, why would you talk about someone and not have them be in the actual movie? And so uh, they got rid of this scene uh, in the very beginning, a flashback scene where Jamie Lee Curtis plays Buckaroo's mother uh, as his father is killed by Zahn uh, in this uh, flashback, uh, doing a, sp- I believe it was a botched uh, speed test for a different vehicle. And uh, yeah, so that's a bummer. There, you can see still images of J.B. Lee Curtis standing next to a child uh, version of Buckaroo Banzai. Another Beagleman story, and this one also from the Empire uh, article from 2015, Earl MacRouch uh, was adding uh, stage directions to the script while they were shooting. And so uh, the script got about seven extra pages. Uh, Beagleman came to the set having received a thicker than uh, expected script and said, uh, are you adding scenes? Are you wasting my money? If you go a day over schedule, you will forfeit your salary. Um, And so Richter was on the fucking like, he was basically just left out to dry stuff that wouldn't even be his fault. Like a mechanical failure or weather might mean that he's out of a job. Uh, He didn't tell the cast up until uh, they were filming the scene with Ellen Barker and Peter Weller where they're in the prison and like uh, Buckaroo's kind of giving the backstory about his wife and how like uh, Penny is like her, her twin. It's very, it's a very weird scene. It's a very weird thing. And, uh, they're just not gelling. Weller and, uh, Barkin are just like kind of, uh, being sassy to each other. They're like just yelling cut. They're just not gelling, uh, in this, in this scene. And so Richter has to take them aside and be like, look, I got to tell you this story. Uh, but you guys can't be the reason why we go behind schedule, Um, It would shut the movie down like the producers are that fucking nuts. And immediately Barkin and Weller just like dropped all of their hang ups and just clicked into gear. They told the rest of the cast and the whole production kind of unified to just give 110 percent to get the movie done on time. Uh, were you going to talk about the fact that, like, outside of this movie, Beagleman was a monster? <laughs> no, I didn't really know much outside of that. Uh, I just knew about what he was like in the film. I mean, I did know uh, he did end up eventually taking his own life. I did know that factoid, but uh, yeah. Basically, uh, Beagleman was at the center of an embezzlement scandal that rocked Hollywood to its actual core when he was caught forging uh, checks for our, an, uh, meant for an actor named Cliff Robertson. Um, this caused a giant uproar within the Hollywood community. Executives kind of like formed camps over who was on his side and who wasn't. Uh, further uh, audits done by the studio, I believe it was Columbia at the time, uh, found an additional $65,000 in forged checks out of Beagleman's office. And this is $1978. That's not like a modest chunk of change. Uh, There was a bombshell book written by journalist Dave McClintock called Indecent Exposure, and it kind of um, like rocked the industry to its core. Uh, Cliff Robertson was actually blacklisted in Hollywood for like making a stink uh, for the studio heads, which at the time were still these like untouchable figures. Um, Further revelations reveal that when Beagleman was working as Judy Garland's uh, manager and agent, he was embezzling hundreds of thousands of dollars from her in the 70 and uh, 
the 70s and 60s, uh, kind of uh, to the point of literally blackmailing fucking Dorothy from Wizard of Oz for $50,000 and stealing a car that was meant as payment to her. Wow. You dug deep, man. Yeah, it's interesting. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com slash offer slash Sirius XM. Literally, his this was his like this Buckaroo Bonsai was like part of his return to Hollywood. Uh, he also helped produce other movies uh, such as War Games and Blame It on Rio and Mr. Mom. But uh, his fortunes kind of crested and waned throughout the years until after uh, one of his uh, last attempts for Hollywood relevancy kind of fell flat. He did take his own life in a hotel room in 1993, I believe. 1995. Well, the last little tidbit about Beagleman for a little bit uh, to maybe lighten things up a bit. He's also the reason for that watermelon scene hey. in April. Why is there a watermelon there? I'll tell you later. Um, so the reason for that incredibly random seeming scene was actually in as like a defense mechanism on Beagleman, or at least to, to give them a little bit of an insight in because he was meddling so much and giving them so many notes and just bugging the shit out of them. But after a little while... And making repeated threats to shut everything down and fire everybody. Right. But after a little while, they were like, hey, I think he's kind of checked out. He's finally like laying off. Um, let's test it out. And so they put this scene in of, about this watermelon because they knew that if he was definitely not watching anymore or if he was if, if, if he was still watching, he would definitely say something about it because it makes no sense. It's out of nowhere. It's, it's in the middle of an just... incredibly tense sequence where like aliens are basically laying siege to the entire bonsai compound and like characters are getting <laughs> murked and like things are like getting very intense and out of nowhere um yeah jeff goldblum's like hey what's that watermelon doing there <laughs> there is uh in a 1986 edition of the world watch one newsletter uh richter explains that the watermelon actually has a perfectly reasonable uh explanation for existing within the universe it was part of a stress test to see if uh the specially engineered watermelon that team bonsai botanical argonomists had been working on to solve the problem of third world hunger. Uh, the watermelon was supposed to be designed to withstand being dropped from an airplane. And so it was <laughs> placed in the pressure plates in order to see if it could withstand the impact. That's, That's according hilarious. to him, uh, why it was there in the universe. 
Yeah, and I love how Rouse like is always like putting stuff in context and explaining things and lowering everything up. Oh, is, is we really did not wonderful. even talk about how uh, again the World Watch One newsletter has been published continuously. Uh, with just a few year gaps every now and again, uh, you can pick up issues now in our year 2022 that have been published recently. Um, and among the many weird oddities of how fans talk about this movie is uh, Richter and uh, Earl McRouch, uh will refer to this film as a quote unquote docudrama, a note for note reenactment of actual events and uh, the real buckaroo bonsai and the rest of the Hong Kong Cavaliers having appeared on set and given approval for their portrayals in the film. Couple more little pr- production thingies. Uh, Dr. Lazardo's 1939 laboratory featured several props used originally in the Boris Karloff Frankenstein films. And uh, more importantly, during the scene where Weller is being tortured by Dr. Lazardo, uh, Weller recalled, I was laughing at the banter between Christopher Lloyd and John Lithgow. I never laughed so hard in my life. They had to stop takes over and over on that segment. So again, someone else sang. They were just laughing the entire time uh, this movie was being shot, which is a lot of fun to hear about. The music coordinator and sound designer, let's get into the soundtrack. Uh, that was uh, Bones Howe or Bones Howie. Bones Howe, I'll go with, who is most notable in music world for producing all the albums Tom Waits recorded for Asylum Records. He collaborated with synthesizer guru Michael Boddicker on the film's theme. Boddicker won a Grammy for his work on the film Flashdance. Peter Weller, as we said, he himself played guitar and pocket trumpet. He did uh, and did his own vocals for the film as well. He did, however, mime the piano playing, but still incredibly impressive that he was a part of that uh, so deeply. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to get into the end credit sequence. Do you have anything before we get into the end credit sequence, the sequel, and the other media that uh, came from this? I mean, there's just so much goddamn material out there about the movie. It has been breathlessly cataloged and just thoroughly engaged with by an incredibly dedicated group of people. Um, I'll see if we can post uh, the interview I did with Dan Berger, the editor-in-chief of World Watch One. Um I did a bad job, so I'm, I'm reticent to, to post it, but <laughs> we'll see. Um, the fan club and the way that the fandom was kept alive was this underground, like, actual thing that should not have existed. Uh, there was actually uh, a member of the marketing department, or I'm sorry, the feature publicity department at 20th Century Fox, a secretary, no less, um, named Diane Wicks, who would, whenever she got a fan letter for Buckaroo Banzai, sent the uh, recipient individual pieces of like promo uh, swag that never got used because the marketing was so clueless and like, you know, bare, you know, the theater, it was in theaters for like two weeks. They showed up at a couple of Star Trek conventions. They had no idea how to market it. <laughs> uh, Peter Weller actually describes being brought into a meeting with the studio and they had to ask him like, so is, is this an action movie or a comedy? We don't know. <laughs> How do we market this movie? Do you know? We figured you'd know. Um, but Diane started um, basically sending this, these marketing materials to individual fans and just keeping this narrow list of a couple of thousand people uh, alive. And that helped uh, release newsletters and that helped, keep this like small group alive, uh, even publishing 
uh, stuff like buttons that said, I don't care what Harlan Ellison says. I love Buckaroo Banzai, <laughs> which I guess is in reference to don't, uh, mean things that the famous sci-fi author said about the movie. That's so funny. Letters came in. This is from a uh, a article in World Watch One, I think from the 35th anniversary issue. Fan mail kept coming in from all kinds of folks, little kids to a 90-year-old retired circus elephant trainer. They loved the film and wanted to know know more about Buckaroo and his friends. I knew that we had boxes and boxes of promo materials stowed in a corner of the publicity building basement, headbands, bump buttons, stickers, press kits, screening cards, and other things. I asked permission to send the unused material out to letter writers and received it. Um... There's even uh, stories of uh, Diane kind of just, eh, I don't want to say embezzled, but like setting aside promo budget for other movies to keep the Bonsai fan club going. I think it was either Halloween one or two got a, a little bit of their cash stolen to keep the Bonsai train going. So one of the most notable sequences in the films is during the credits with the actors from the film all walking in the L.A. riverbed in front of a, the Sepulveda Dam to the tune of Michael Boddicker's theme. Uh, that song was not ready when they shot the sequence, however, so the song Uptown Girl was actually used during the shoot as it was at the same tempo, so it's a good thing to keep in mind, especially because they're all like walking all badass and stuff up. Town girl, I've been living it. It's so funny to me. Richter said, I always see that, and I can hear that reverberating in the canyon, the song Uptown Girl, uh, in the cement dam. That was the home stretch of cutting it, too. I don't know if we had a lot of choices. It was a strange experience making that movie. It was actually the crazy producer, David Bagelman, who was the influence for this moment. Richter said, when it ended just with a kiss, he said, it needs something else. And we had no money at all at that point. And he said, I'm going to pop for some sort of choreographed ending that we can talk about. He got a choreographer in because there was no way I would know how to move uh, around all those people. So it kind of emerged from the end of post-production. And go ahead and check that out. It is a really iconic mo- film moment. Uh, Wes Anderson actually was inspired by the sequence enough to recreate it in his film, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Zizou and uh, it also features Jeff Goldblum. So we got to redo that moment in a, another film years later, which is a lot of fun. Fans will argue or at least debate about the symbolism or meaning of the scene because characters that uh, died in the movie are there amongst the group. Uh, people say it's either a dream sequence or it's the final victory of Buckaroo Banzai who managed to save everybody. Um, others say it's the actors taking a bow. Like it's it's all it's a it's a very interesting thing to just end your movie on. And yeah, it was born from the producer. I believe he independently forked out the money to do it. It was outside the budget. Yeah. Because they the movie just needed one last sting to send everybody home on. Uh so then there's also the other weird thing that happens at the end of this movie, and that is the uh, tag for a potential sequel. Not te- potential, uh, man. The the all but assured. The balls on yeah. this crew. Buckaroo Banzai against the World Crime League. Richter said, that seems like a real cheat to put it there and not make the movie. But again, if the movie had gone out to make a fortune, we would have made it. Another reason why there was yet to be a sequel, even after it became a cult phenomenon, uh, this is according to Richter, I believe MGM owns the theatrical rights. 
The other big insanity for Buckaroo is that the paper trail for the rights is almost impossible to follow. Warner Bros. wants to do an uh, adult animated version of Buckaroo. Polygram sold it to MGM as a big bundle. All these films move around. And then, finally, you're sitting at a studio that you found out purchased part of someone's library, and they are reluctant to do anything with the title because they don't know for a fact that David Bagelman, who is a notorious double dealer, might not have sold the international rights in perpetuity to some guy in Bangkok. And even if they are enthusiastic about doing a sequel, they'll say, our legal department is saying we don't have a clear chain of title here, so we're not going to stick our heads up, invest money, and then discover that some guy says, oh, by the way, I have all the international rights. And so that's what's really held things up, because there's been multiple attempts at TV shows, sequel films, um, and there is, at least, if you are disappointed, there was never a sequel, you are in for a treat. Max uh, Mac Debatable. <laughs> Mac Rouse did a novelization of the sequel, which was published by Dark Horse as recently November of 2021. We got this. It is a 544-page book written in the first person from Reno's point of view. He also did a novelization of the film uh, of that movie. It is also from Reno's POV. Uh, The sequel book synopsis is as follows. Still mourning the losses of his beloved Penny Pretty and his surrogate father, Professor Hikita, Buckaroo Banzai must also contend with a, con- a constant threat of attack from his immortal nemesis, Hanoi Zan, ruthless leader of the World Crime League. To make matters worse, Planet 10 warrior queen John Imdahl was sent her lect- uh, has sent her Lectroid legions against Earth with a brutal ultimatum. Or is her target true target Buckaroo Banzai? As the apocalyptic threats continue to mount, only Buckaroo and his Hong Kong cavaliers stand in the way of global destruction, or in the words of one of the movie's iconic lines laugh while you can monkey boy so i i did not i did not read this book for the uh episode it's only 544 pages jake i mean what, i did what check out you? goodreads and it has a okay. community average of 2.1 uh reviews uh like kevin with one star says i didn't finish this in the i read the entire book sense i finished in the this is completely unreadable and i won't waste another minute with it sense uh, another author, another reviewer says, I honestly don't know who is crazier, Earl Mac Roush for writing this or his publisher for reading the insanity he handed them and thinking, yeah, this is a book. Um, one of the five star <laughs> reviews actually says a bonker sprawl of a novel. <laughs> <laughs> the moments that gleam come together like flecks of mica to make a granite boulder a thing of wonder. <laughs> like, <laughs> it apparently is pretty rough. The novelization of the movie, I hear, is a lot better and provides a lot of backstory and really helps flesh out the universe in the way that someone who watches the film and wants more of it could. Uh there's comic book adaptations that have been made. Uh, actually, a Marvel Comics tie-in uh, from way back in the 80s. That's pretty much just note for note the movie as presented. Um, there were some s- kind of graphic novel side stories that I heard were okay. Um, there was even a computer game, which was... I looked up yes. footage of it, and it no music, no sound effects, horrible like CGA graphics of and it's yeah, it just came like out, it came out for the apple to atari commodore 64 that whole era i mean it yeah. is old school it's described as an interactive fiction game i mean it's just like a kind of an adventure game in the most a basic text sense. adventure game with really bare bones graphics and it did not look 
fun at all. Uh, and and uh, with the comic books, I will say Moonstone Books published a run of Buckaroo comics back in 2006. Uh, this included Return of the Screw. This was written by Earl Mac Roush himself. Um, and apparently it was an adaptation of a Buckaroo Bonsai TV pilot script called Supersize Those Fries. Oh, okay. uh, Speaking of TV, there was also a show in the works in 1998 via Fox Network uh, called a Buckaroo Bonsai Ancient Secrets and New Mysteries that was never released. Uh, Kevin Smith also tried to get a show going with Amazon Studios. Uh, more, again, as recently as 2016, that fell apart around a lawsuit MGM filed against the original creators. So again, these title disputes uh, really getting in the way of us getting a true blue Buckaroo Banzai resurgence, either on a streamer or in film ver- uh, version. So that's the crux of it, Holden. That, I feel like, is the meat of what makes this topic so fascinating, is in an era where Everything from the 80s gets rebooted, rehashed, yeah. tie-ins, uh, or even just and like... A fun- and a Funko Pop. <laughs> and a Funko Pop. You have to have a Funko Pop. <laughs> Buckaroo Banzai stands alone with this, like, just drought of content. It, the movie basically stands alone, and it's never gotten that cynical nostalgia treatment. Uh, I yeah. thought at the time, because it was so obscure... But the fact that the rights are tangled to this scumbag producer that, you know, the and the cult status of it means that just getting the lawyer's fees settled is already you're already like 50 million dollars in the hole before you even shoot anything uh, means that it's in kind of cast in amber as this just like pristine thing that will only exist in the minds of 80s kids. And I think there's something weirdly beautiful about that. And just like how the monster's often way scarier before you ever actually see it on the screen, the promise of what Buckaroo Banzai could be as a sequel, Mm. as a television series might actually be better than what we would have gotten mm. and we can it can exist in our heads and it can it can exist in all these different you know forms or or just in these ridiculous uh treatments and scr- uh, unfinished scripts that Roush had thrown out there by the way isn't it Roush goes on to write big trouble in little china no it's uh richter goes on to richter write goes on. Uh, okay. big trouble in little china which yeah. due to the presence of a spooky kind of fu manchu villain figure made many people think, and for decades, this was on like the trivia section of IMDb, that uh, Big Trouble in Little China was the adapted sequel to Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah. But the fact is, is that Buckaroo, I mean, sorry, that the fact is, is that Big Trouble in Little China uh, actually was originated by two other screenwriters that came from an entirely different writing background, and Richter mm. basically just kind of did a punch-up. It was a mildly famous lawsuit where he tried to argue that he did enough change to warrant a writer credit, but he only got an adaption credit. Um but no, yeah, that is that is just patently false. Well, I have a quote to end this episode on, Jake. Shall I lay it on, upon you and our listeners' ears? I would love to hear it. This is from Richter, the director. The most important thing I did in Hollywood was make Buckaroo Banzai. And the fact that it's excited so many generations of people, well, that's what art should be doing all the time. If you like Buckaroo Banzai, I suspect you're going to do good things because it's a good-hearted movie and it advocates cooperation, fearless exploration, crazy possibilities, and has a strange sense of humor about the way this planet works. We might as well be able to laugh at it as well as take it seriously. 
Spoken quote, like Richter. a true guy whose last Hollywood produced movie was Stealth. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, uh, this was a blast. This is just a great excuse for me to get to watch this movie again. Shout outs to Evan as well, who championed this film. And, uh, uh, you know, it became just a cult phenomenon within me and my group of friends and Murder Fist and, you know, Tallahassee and in uh, New York City. And I was just so thrilled to get to do this was definitely one for me. So thanks for putting up with it and allowing me to do this, Jake. And thanks for listening, all you listeners out there. I promise we'll we'll do like a more Skyrim level uh, <laughs> episode. I think we got League of Legends coming. So uh, you'll get one of the, you know what I'm saying? We, we, we'll give you the big hits as well. But uh, this was a, a joy for me this week so thank you so much uh for making this uh the fun-ass job i get to have uh week in week out and a great excuse to learn way more about a movie that i know has no right to have this much lore behind it uh it's so phenomenal if you'd like to follow us further support us further Check us out on patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We got uh, weekly bonus episodes for just $5 a month. For $15 a month, you can join us on our Discord for our Sunday study sessions. This last week, we watched Buckaroo Bonsai. It was, it was a, a fucking it was blast. It was a good time. It was a good time. Uh, also, check me out, twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Monday, Tuesday, Friday streams. And it's a blast. I'm trying to do some extra streaming, too. Some gaming streams and whatnot. And uh, I hope you join me for that. Uh, all right, Jake. Follow me on Twitter at BestJakeYoung. Read all my thoughts and plops. And uh, check out little bits of research and fun things that I'm discovering throughout my uh, week of learning about random stuff. And uh, <laughs> hey, I do streams too. I'm a goddamn VTuber. That's right, a digital avatar for the 21st century. Check out twitch.tv slash Puppet Jared. All right. That's all one word, Puppet Jared, or youtube.com slash Puppet Jared. Uh, the flagship stream is the Cartoon Dumpster, a weekly deep dive into the animated oddities of the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Such a good stream. Yay. I'm jealous. Such a good stream concept. And I know it's uh, building a lot of steam. Yeah, it's awesome, man. Um, every week, every week, one of you idiots comes on says god damn it i finally came in to watch and it's fucking amazing and you could be that idiot this week take control of your life i love it and always remember never stop bruising and no matter where you go there you are monkey boy <laughs> this show is made possible by listeners like you Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.